Hello, my name is Nicholas Ward and this is Historical Hysteria. Today we are journeying back to the 16th century to follow 39-year-old Ferdinand Magellan and his trusty 21-year-old servant Enrique of Malacca as they departed on the first circumnavigation of the world. Once the world was proved round, people wanted to circle it. Despite what is often said, it was not Columbus who disproved the flat earth, but mathematicians in Greece nearly 2,000 years earlier. However, Columbus did become the first person to put spherical earth theory into practice when in 1492 he failed to find the western route to India. There is no evidence people in Europe thought he would sail off the edge of the world. Columbus fell about 25,000 kilometres short of India, However, the discovery of America coincided with the final fall of the Byzantine Empire and the end of Moorish Spain. The dual pressures of the loss of the lucrative Silk Road and the needs of the new kingdoms of Spain and Portugal to attain security led the nascent states to push outwards like no states had ever before. Portugal, under King Henry the Navigator, gambled on sailing south, investing his nascent nation's wealth in navigation, shipfaring, mathematics and astrology, to aid mapping and trading along the coast of Africa. This gamble led them to the Gold Coast, India and finally the Spice Islands, giving the Portuguese a monopoly on many luxury goods, most importantly spices, in Europe for nearly a century, and turning them into one of the continent's wealthiest nations. Spain's monarchs, meanwhile, took a gamble investing on a penniless, mad Italian, twice rejected by the Portuguese crown, who claimed Asia was 2,400 kilometres away across the Atlantic. Queen Isabella, who took a liking to the mad Italian, used her meagre treasury to fund his expedition against the advice of... Well, everyone. It is worth noting that Columbus was rejected over and over again, not because he was a visionary genius, but because he was... Kinda dumb. The 2400 kilometer claim was ridiculed at the time because mathematicians could already estimate how wide the Earth would need to be to be a sphere and knew the 2400 kilometers was too short. But history is sometimes little more than a game of roulette, and so in 1492, Columbus accidentally embarked on one of the most monumentally important voyages of discovery and conquest in history. It was in this great rush of exploration that a young man named Ferdinand Magellan was born, in Portugal in 1480. Not much is known about the young Magellan, but we can imagine an impressionable 13-year-old who must have listened eagerly to the stories coming back from the New World, India and Africa, and looked greedily at the vast fortunes won and lost in this game of state. Magellan was the son of a minor noble family, for minor nobles, the glories and riches of the Age of Discovery offered a chance to improve their standing in ways domestic service never could. In 1505, at 25, Magellan enlisted in the 7th Portuguese Indian Armada that established a series of forts to secure Portuguese dominance of the Indian Ocean. By 1505, the Portuguese had well established their dominance over the maritime Silk Road, and power structures had been developed, and Magellan, for all his later ambitions, does not appear in histories of this time. He would remain in the Indies for several years until a new opportunity for advancement presented itself. He would volunteer to sail with a diplomatic mission to the city of Malacca, and in 1511 he would return with a fleet sent to conquer the city. Winning the trust of the fleet's commanders, he would be richly rewarded. Around the same time, Magellan took on an unassuming 14-year-old Malay boy as a slave, who he baptised Enrique. Little is known about Enrique of Malacca, who was Magellan's personal slave and would follow him for the rest of their lives. 
their fates would become irrevocably intertwined, and Enrique, a slave child from the Malay archipelago, would go on to make history. Though, until recently, he was all but ridden out of it. Magellan, laden with plunder and riches he could never have dreamed of in his native Portugal, returned home accompanied by Enrique. As Magellan sailed for home, further news of the Americas was filtering into Europe. The initial excitement for Columbus's discovery had petered out when it became apparent they had found neither India nor spices, and expeditions by actual explorers like Amerigo Vespucci had quickly shown that um, the Americas was not in fact Asia. For a time, it seemed like the continent of the Americas contained little of value compared to the riches of the Spice Islands. Magellan found life at home difficult, and as often happened with the nouveau riche of the age, quickly fell out of favour with the court. Magellan's close friend Francisco Serrao had sailed west after the fall of Malacca and discovered the Spice Islands, and setting up a Portuguese embassy with the Sultanate of Ternate. He would send letters to his friend about the abundance of nutmeg and cloves found on the island, hugely valuable in Europe at the time. Magellan took these letters to King Manuel of Portugal, eager to sail west around the newly discovered tip of South America and into Asia to open a new route to the Spice Islands for Portugal. Manuel declined. Magellan would repeatedly petition the court and would be declined again and again. By this point, the trade route to the Spice Islands was well established, so what use did the crown have for another route which would have just disrupted their existing power balances? Frustrated in his desire to lead, Magellan departed for campaigns against Morocco, where in 1514 he was accused of illegal trading with Moors. Magellan continued quarrelling with the king until finally in 1517 he left for Spain, accompanied by his trusty slave Enrique, and armed with the letters from Sarao detailing the riches of the Spice Islands. He offered his services to King Charles I of Spain, who gladly seized the opportunity to break the Portuguese spice monopoly. As Magellan crossed the border, it is likely he would have known that he would never be able to return. Once the voyage was sold to the Spanish, he would renounce his citizen, be branded a traitor in his home country, and his properties would be seized. He was alone in the world, all but for his trusty servant, Enrique. The Spanish were extremely eager to retain Magellan, despite coming from a nation they viewed as their chief rival. Up to this point, the Portuguese had run circles around the Spanish at sea. Despite the claims of some, the stories of gold-laden cities were, at this point, just stories. For this reason, Charles was eager to set up a Spanish presence in the Spice Islands, and would bring other Portuguese explorers, such as Amerigo Vespucci, to Spain to draw up maps and plan western expansion routes. Magellan was quickly provided with five ships, 270 men, and two years of supplies, as well as a contract promising 10% of any returns the voyage made. Magellan slaved away over charts in Seville, consulting explorers and cartographers to map a route to the Americas and beyond. From Seville to Brazil, and from Malacca home, he could, re he could rely on maps and logs. But from the tip of South America to the Straits of Malacca, he was blind. Unfortunately, despite his experience, he would go on to make a fatal error in his calculations. Despite threats from the Portuguese, the Spanish were determined to continue with the voyage, and so on the 20th of September 1519, the ships San Antonio, Victoria, Concepcion, Santiago, and the flagship Trinidad set sail for the New World. 39-year-old Magellan commanded the Trinidad, and with him sailed, as always, his trusty servant, Enrique of Malacca, now 21 years old. 
and with them sailed Antonio Pigafetta, an Italian chronicler who worked as Magellan's personal assistant, and whose account of the voyage is where most of our knowledge of it comes from. Enrique was actually far more important to this voyage than is sometimes realised, though the, through the simple fact that he spoke Malay, the trade language of the Malay archipelago. With trade routes monopolised by the Portuguese, the Spanish had no one but Enrique who could communicate with locals on arrival, and cooperation with locals was going to be necessary given the Portuguese had a policy of treating any foreign ships east of the Cape of Good Hope as pirates. Magellan kept a simple and unadorned captain's log, and on the 20th of September he wrote very simply, quote, The journey to the great riches of the Spice Islands has begun. More Spanish crewmen have been added for the voyage, as they suspect me of betraying them. But this will not slow down the truth of this voyage. We have left the port at Spain. End quote. This fear of betrayal would come back to haunt Magellan. Of the five leaders of the expedition, three were Spaniards, and the Spanish crown seemed to treat Magellan more as a useful tool than a loyal ally. The simplicity of Magellan's entry seems surprising given the enormity of the expedition by today's knowledge, and possibly speaks to an ignorance of its dangers at the time. Though Europeans had sailed 15,000 kilometres east and found the Spice Islands, none had yet tried to cross the Pacific. Its size was a complete unknown, but rough calculations used to estimate the size of the globe had suggested the Pacific might only take a few days or weeks to cross. After all, how big could it be? The fleet would make an average time crossing the Atlantic and sail down the coast of Brazil and Argentina, reaching the edge of the known world within about six months. However, in the harsh regions of Patagonia, the fleet would become trapped by winter storms, and they would eat through much of their supplies. Having spent only six months at sea and having barely left known waters, three of the fleet's captains mutinied. The insurrection was short and bloody. One captain would be killed, another beheaded, and a third marooned on an island in the inhospitable Patagonian coast. However, worse was to come. In April 1520, the Santiago was sent to find a passage and was struck by a storm and sunk. All its crew members but one were rescued, and it took the fleet a full month to ferry the crew back onto the other ships. One ship down, the fleet wandered aimlessly through Patagonia. It will take them another seven months to find a passage through to the Pacific, a distance of less than 1,000 kilometres. Six months later, the fleet is still wandering through the islands of Patagonia. The San Antonio, the largest ship in the fleet, is sent to explore and never returns. It carries with it the majority of their supplies. The fleet searches for the, fleet searches for the ship for two weeks, venturing as far back as the Atlantic Ocean. Six months later, the San Antonio will sail back into Seville, its captain Magellan's cousin in chains. Mazquieta, Magellan's cousin, insisted the mutiny was unfounded. However, he had signed a confession that Magellan had tortured Spanish sailors after, after being um, tortured. Unknown to Magellan, the mutineers would be exonerated and Mesquita imprisoned. Another two weeks later, after two weeks, Magellan decided the three ships, now more crowded and undersupplied than ever, had to set out into the Pacific, and in November 1520, a strait, today named the Straits of Magellan, finally led them into the Pacific Ocean. Not knowing the extent of the Pacific, some estimates at the time suggested it would take just four days to sail to the other side. Four months later, they landed in Guam. Thirty men had died of scurvy and their supplies were almost exhausted. 
Though in desperate need of rest, the fleet was forced on after raiding the local villages. Ten days later, they arrived in what is today the Philippines, where they at last recuperated. At this point, Magellan was just 3,000 kilometers away from becoming the first person to ever circumnavigate the world. Unlike Columbus, who jointly discovered America with the crew of all three of his ships, this would have been an achievement of just two men in the entire fleet and the entire world. No one but Portuguese sailors had reached the Spice Islands at that point, so not a sailor on board had been to the East Indies. In what is today the Philippines, the Spanish encountered large warships and trading ships, their leaders laden with gold, and the usefulness of Enrique of Malacca became apparent as he used his Malay to communicate with these strangers, who invited the small fleet to their cities. Magellan, no doubt interested in the large amounts of gold he saw, tried hard to win the locals' trust and would eventually be granted an audience with a powerful local ruler, the Raj of Cebu. Now, the story of Magellan and the Raj of Cebu is unfortunately one told only from the Spanish perspective. And so the story goes that arriving at the palace on Cebu, the Raj made clear he demanded tribute from all boats that passed through his waters. Magellan, through Enrique, convinced him to make an exception, as he was the emissary of a vast and powerful empire. Magellan then impressed the locals with their steel, gunpowder, ships, and gifts. He then healed the sick through the power of Christ, and so awed by his personality, says the chronicler Pigafetta, that the Raj of Cebu converted to Christianity, swore fealty to Spain, along with his wife and most of his chiefs. Quote, If I and my vassals all belong to your sovereign, how much more ought the land? End quote. The Raj said when Magellan requested use of some land. The Raj then ordered all his client chieftains to convert to Christianity, swear fealty to Spain, and aid the Spanish with resupplying. However, within the Rajanate, there was division among the chiefs, and one local client chief named Lapu Lapu of Mactan refused to swear fealty to Spain. Another chief of Mactan sends an emissary to the Raj, apologizing and asking for help to suppress Lapu Lapu's rebellion. And so, the Raj asks Magellan to accompany him on this expedition. Magellan offers not just to join the battle, but to conduct it alone, to prove to them the might of Christianity and of Spain. Now, it seems highly unlikely the ruler of a powerful trading empire would just immediately roll over at the sight of a couple hundred emaciated Spaniards and surrender his entire empire. And maybe someone in this story had an agenda for, let's say, telling some porkies. However, Using outsiders to control troublesome internal quarrels is a strategy as old as history, and sometimes people record what they want to hear, and not what is actually being said. On the 14th of April, the Spanish sacked a town called Bulaia on Mactan Island, however Lapu-Lapu was not subdued. So on the 27th of April 1521, Magellan landed outside the main town of Mactan to confront the local Lapu-Lapu's forces. Magellan's next decision is baffling. On Mactan, there were two chiefs. One, Zula, who wished to swear fealty to Spain, or stay loyal to the Raj, depending on who you believe, and requested one boatload of men to help him fight Lapu-Lapu, about 20 or 30 men. Magellan instead took three boats of 60 men, but refused any help, insisting on fighting Lapu-Lapu alone. Lapu-Lapu's forces consisted of 1,500 men, and his forces were not a ragtag group of hunter-gatherers. The Rajanate of Cebu was a wealthy trading district, their warriors armed with iron, steel, and most valuably, experience. According to Pigafetta, the officers begged Magellan not to go ahead with his plan. Magellan ignored them. 
But Magellan did have guns and crossbows and cannons, things which against unprepared forces can be devastating. With just 300 men, Pizarro would topple the Incan Empire by luring the Inca into a trap and kidnapping the Emperor. Perhaps Magellan had a similar plan. Let's see what he does. Magellan landed with 60 men, sending an emissary to Lapu-Lapu. He demands surrender. The reply was a no, and they request that the Spaniards wait till morning so that Lapu-Lapu could gather more men. The Spaniards attempt to attack, but it turns out Lapu-Lapu is attempting to lure them into a trap, and they find the path to town littered with traps. So they retreat. The next morning, the 60 sailors land again. Lapu-Lapu has gathered his full force around the beach, 1,500 men. Magellan leads just 49 to the beach, while 11 armed with crossbows and muskets stay to guard the boats. The Trinidad sits out to sea, watching the battle with the ships of the Rajanate of Cebu. No doubt eagerly watching to see how these vastly outnumbered Spaniards are going to fare. Let's leave Magellan on the Mukdam beach for a moment, to fly back across the Pacific to Mexico, where at this exact moment, Hernán Cortés is assembling his forces for a march on the great Aztec city of Tenochtitlan. Cortés had begun his conquest of Mexico just four months before Magellan set sail. Just three days after Magellan left Spain, Cortés marched victorious into Tlaxcalan with just 600 men, where he finds a local hatred for the Aztec Empire and allies with Tlaxcalan's leaders against the Aztecs, marching on Tenochtitlan, now backed by tens of thousands of hardened warriors. And at the exact moment Magellan lands on Mactan dreaming of glory, Cortés is on the other side of the world, preparing to bring an empire to its knees. The comparison between Cortés and Magellan is a fascinating one. Both minor nobility, both desperate for glory, both on risky quests to bring wealth and territory to Spain. In many ways, they are very similar men, but in one, they seem very different. The story of the rise of colonization often runs, Europeans arrive, are so technologically superior, no one can stand against them. But the reality of the world at this point was not that, and even against a Stone Age society, Cortés understood this. When Cortés set to conquering the Aztecs, he used all his wit and cunning, turning local allies, turning to local allies, seizing their god-emperor, lying, deceit and cunning, and only fighting when he had to. Magellan, when put in a similar position, did the exact opposite, pitting 60 Spaniards against 1,500 Filipinos. Despite his bravado, Cortés understood 500 Spaniards could not overcome 100,000 Aztecs. His cousin Pizarro would understand this during the conquest of Peru, resorting to kidnapping and ambush. But Magellan seemed to genuinely believe that 60 Spaniards with steel swords were a match for 1,500 Matkans, who also had steel swords. So let's go back to the beach of Matkan. The Matkans surround the Spanish, as Magellan wades to shore, there is no doubt confusion and apprehension in their ranks. This must be a trap, is surely whispered between the men as they look on. But no one comes. Magellan is there alone. Perhaps they look nervously out to sea at the great sailing ship the Trinidad. Perhaps they heard stories of the great destructive thunder it can make. But nothing happens. Magellan had chosen a beach to land at that was too shallow, and the cannons of his fleet are out of range. 
So after a time, the Matkans charge, and the guns and crossbows open fire. The locals are held back for a time, but the muskets are too far away to be truly effective. And worse, they run out of ammunition within half an hour. The Spanish steel protects them for a time, and Magellan sends a small party of men to burn houses along the shore, hoping to draw off part of the Mactan force. But it fails, and the Mactans suddenly notice the Spaniards' undefended legs, and begin targeting these. Magellan is caught in the leg by a poisoned arrow, Pigafetta at some point is grazed in the forehead by one, and Enrique is struck and injured. Magellan orders his men to retreat, fighting a rearguard. However, he and a handful of others are surrounded and cut off, where they fight on for another hour. Finally, Magellan loses his spear. Grasping for his sword, he is struck in the leg by a terciado, a type of triangular sword from the region. Magellan collapses and is killed. Local tradition usually represents this fatal moment, with Lapu-Lapu striking the deadly blow. However, no details of Lapu-Lapu other than his name survive. Magellan's suicidal charge into the 1500 Mactans without his cannons is one of the strangest episodes in colonial history. His inexplicable decision to leave his gunners so far away, to land on a beach where his cannons could not help him, and worse, to deny assistance from the local chieftains, it beggars belief. How could such a competent sailor and leader make such an insane decision? Perhaps... Magellan truly bought into the idea of his voyage and victory as something ordained by God. Enrique of Malacca was injured alongside Magellan, took to his bed to recover, and refused to come out from under a heavy woolen blanket. Magellan's will is opened, and it is found that he has granted freedom to Enrique for his years of loyal service. It is impossible to say what Enrique was thinking at this point, because no one bothered recording his opinion. He had been bound to Magellan for ten years, from the age of fourteen. Had Magellan told the young man he would set him free? Did they have a good relationship? Magellan seems to have put a lot of faith in him, and he was often sent alone to treat with locals. Pigafetta, who gives us some of the only records of this young man, simply says he refused to come out from under his blanket. It must have been frightening for the young man, who had been bound to Magellan for so long, to realise he finally had his freedom. This realisation would have been short-lived, however as he earned the wrath of the new commander of the flagship, Duarte Barbosa, who informed him he was still a slave and would be taken to Spain and presented to Donna Beatrice, wife of Magellan, who, unbeknownst to them, had died that same year. Enrique was roused from his recuperation and ordered to resume his duties as a slave and interpreter, else be flogged, before being sent alone to negotiate with the Raj of Cebu. He returned with a message. The Raj had tribute he wished to send to the King of Spain, and asked them all to come dine with him. So on the 1st of May, 1521, 24 men, two of the three fleet captains, and the expedition's astrologer and priest went ashore with the 24-year-old Enrique of Malacca. Picafetta, the chronicler, was not one of them. He had been struck by a poisoned arrow in the forehead and was recovering. During the feast, two men returned to the ship to warn them to keep on alert. As they arrived, there was a commotion in the city. The ship weighed anchor and fired its guns. A little while later, a Spanish sailor named Joao Sarao appeared on the shore, bound, begging them not to fire. Sarao told them everyone but he and Enrique of Malacca were dead. He said the Raj of Cebu would let him go if they ransomed his life. The ship set sail without Sarao. Before they left, Sarao said on Judgment Day, 
he would demand the soul of his friend, Joao Carvalho, who had refused him. Neither he, nor Enrique, nor any of the others were seen again. This has become known as the May Massacre. It is often said that the victims of this massacre were poisoned, however given no one returned from the feast, and there is no record of Sorau being poisoned or claiming poison, and there are no records from the people on the island, this is complete speculation that is often still reported as fact. Pigafetta puts the blame for the massacre squarely on the shoulders of Enrique, claiming he organised a scheme to seize the ship and its merchandise. Given Cavallo said only he and the interpreter were alive, this seems credible, however no one gives any evidence for this. Three ships and about 110 men remained, after the massacre on Cebu. Too few to crew all three ships, so Concepcion was burned and they set sail west with two ships remaining. The ships continued to explore, but unbeknownst to them, their troubles have not ended. After engaging in acts of piracy, they are attacked by a Bruneian fleet. Losing more men, the fleet sails south and finally encounters the rumoured Spice Islands. Unfortunately for the crew, Magellan had many contacts and experience in Southeast Asia from his campaigns as a young man. No one else in the crew had any experience or spoke Malay. And there was another danger. The Portuguese, who had no problem attacking any other Europeans who tried to break their spice monopoly. The ships finally found a safe port in Tidor, in modern-day Indonesia, whose leader was more than happy to relieve the Europeans of their trade goods in exchange for spices. Finally, back in areas mapped by Europeans, and in the home stretch, they loaded down with cloves and nutmeg. The Trinidad, however, was damaged, so the two ships decided to head back separately. The Victoria, now commanded by Juan Sebastian Elcano, sailed west for the Cape of Good Hope. Twenty men would die of starvation before they could reach resupply, because they had filled their cargo with twenty tons of cloves instead of food. Forced to land, the ship stopped in Cape Verde, a Portuguese colony off the west coast of Africa. This wouldn't have been a problem if the ship wasn't loaded down with spices. The Portuguese detained thirteen crew members and the ship had to beat a hasty retreat. Finally, on the 6th of September 1522, the Victoria limped battered and bruised into San Lucar, Spain, almost three years to the day that they had left. Of 277 men, of 270 men who had set sail, just 18 returned. Twelve more would be freed by the Portuguese a few months later. And the men of the Trinidad? Well, the Trinidad would be captured by the Portuguese, the ship lost, and just five men would return between 1525 and 1526. The men of the Victoria would be given a royal audience, Elcano would receive certain royal rewards and a pension, and they all received a share of the spice profits, a clap on the shoulder, and were promptly forgotten. The Aztec Empire had collapsed in 1521, and by 1522, the first boatloads of Mesoamerican gold began to arrive in Seville. Of all the characters of the Age of Discovery, Magellan is arguably one of the least romanticised. In the English-speaking world, Sir Francis Drake's circumnav circumnavigation of the world, 50 years later, is better known. And Magellan is not just overlooked in the English-speaking world. According to the first English biography written of the man in 1890, there were no biographies of him outside of Spain, and the first translated into Portuguese was in 1881. This may be partly for the untimely end of the man, however Magellan was also just 
an inconvenient character for Spain. He was Portuguese, he was a lesser noble, and he had already had his name tarnished by the trial of the crew of the San Antonio. It is likely, had he returned alive, things would not have gone well for him anyway. For all its guild, the Age of Discovery had a habit of consuming its children. Pizarro was assassinated, Columbus died impoverished and ridiculed, and even the great Hernán Cortés would become an inconvenient embarrassment to the crown, who would eventually simply cut off all contact with him. It is said that he once leapt onto the king's carriage and on not being recognised, cried out, I am the one who has given your majesty more provinces than your ancestors left you cities. Out of 270 sailors that set off with Magellan, one shipload deserted, 40 successfully circumnavigated the world, 35 survived the journey, and 4 disappeared into the mists of history. The fates of Juan de Cartagena and Pedro Sanchez, Juan Cerro and Enrique of Malacca, are still and will always be a mystery. Enrique of Malacca was named such because he had been taken as a slave 10 years earlier in the Straits of Malacca by a young Magellan. Taken west around the world to Portugal, taught Portuguese and Spanish, before being taken with Magellan to Spain, and then onto the Trinidad as his personal servant and translator. Enrique could speak Malay, the trade language of the Malay archipelago, where he would where he would sail with his master, through the icy straits of Magellan and across the endless expanse of the Pacific, to the islands of the Philippines and the Rajanate of Cebu, to a land where once more he was surrounded by people speaking his native tongue, where he would have gotten the first news of his long-lost homeland. Enrique fought for Magellan, was even injured for Magellan, and after his master's death was still treated as a slave. The Spanish believed he was the one who betrayed them. If he did, what was his price? Did he walk into the palace of the Raj, burning with fury and sell out his comrades for nothing but the pleasure of revenge? Or did he have something else in mind? The island of Cebu is just 2,400 kilometres from the Straits of Malacca, where he was born. A long distance, but certainly not insurmountable in the well-interconnected archipelago. And so... Though Enrique of Malacca disappears from the historical record, let us imagine a young man standing alone in the palace of the Raj, finding himself for the first time in his life terrifyingly alone. Perhaps he boards a ship south to find if any vestige of his old life remains in the tropical peninsulas of Malay. And if he did, then it is entirely possible that a humble slave boy became the first person to ever circumnavigate the world. Unfortunately, it is also possible he was killed. If he did indeed betray the Spanish, the failure to capture a ship might have cost him his life. Or he might even not have betrayed them at all. Maybe he was just left alive for negotiations. Unfortunately, we don't know. His life will forever be one of those great historical mysteries. But personally, I like to imagine a 25-year-old Enrique sitting on a wooden deck his eyes craned for the first sight of land, breathing deeply the sea breeze that carries the unmistakable smell of home, and knowing he was finally free. Thank you for listening to the story of Magellan and Enrique of Malacca, and the first circumnavigation of the world. That is all we have time for today. As always, feedback can be sent to Historical Hysteria and check the socials at r slash Historical Hysteria on Reddit and at Manic History on Twitter. And before I leave, let me leave you with this.
on this day in history. In 1937, the fabric nylon was patented by the company DuPont. Synthetic fabrics would go on to become the dominant form of fabric in the middle of the 20th century, briefly making up over 60% of the textile industry.